Well, thank you to Josh and Stephanie for sharing the word today. Isaiah 43 is one of my favorite because it talks about don't remember the former things because we get caught up in in the past. Sometimes we live on the laurels of the past and don't quite make it into the present. God is doing a new thing. It talks to us about a future vision and what might be coming. And then in Romans 12, there's that line that, that we are to be transformed, that we are to be changed. And these two themes are interwoven within this sermon today. But I want to begin first with a story, and I think I've shared part of this with you in the past, but, but there's some new twists to it that I want you to hear. And this is about St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in Page, Arizona. Four years ago, the bishop of the uh, Diocese of Utah sent this uh, experienced pastor down to Page because that little section of Arizona is a part of Utah Diocese. And she said, I want you either to make this a vital and viable church or I'm going to close it. They had 21 people who were worshiping in that congregation in that town. And there was a whole row of like four churches down on Church Row. And this was the smallest. And they really could not afford a full-time pastor. Well, today they average 120 in worship. And they have a vital ministry to the Page, Arizona community and to the many tourists who come to Lake Powell. And it hinged on a key concept that their pastor presented to them when he first went. That transformation of that congregation came about when he said that they would no longer live out of a state or an attitude of scarcity, but in the expectation of God's abundance in their midst. Not scarcity, but God's abundance. And this affirmation that God will provide made all of the difference. It was the lens through which they could see the new thing that God was going to do and did do in their midst. And they began to do things they never thought that they could do. They didn't think 20 people could start a food pantry. They reached out into the poor in the community. They made it be known that St. Stephen's welcomed everyone into the church, and especially those who were day workers or migrant workers or transients. You know, people who didn't dress or speak or even smell like regular church members in Page. The pastor was branded as a radical and he was dispatched from the association of pastors in that town. But he labored on with a small group of people who worked out of the abundance of God rather than the scarcity image, the poor me image that they had carried for far too long. I tell the story because the downward spiral of a congregation results all too often in self-defeating and self-destructive behavior. It's up to the church's leadership, not just the pastor, but the lay leaders as well, to paint this potential future that's far different 
than they carried in their despair and depression as a downward spiraling congregation. And this pastor did what a leader must do. If you're reading along in our book by Anthony Robinson, Leadership for Vital Congregations, we're on chapter 2. And Robinson names these five leadership gurus who approach the subject of leadership from five different perspectives. Now, I misspoke last week when I said none of them were from business because Dr. Wheatley, who's one of the ones that he he quotes, is actually a professor of business at BYU. But she comes out of a different way of thinking about it, and I'll talk about that in a second. The pastor in Page knew something about leadership. And the teachings of people like the ones that we're reading about in Robinson's book. And this motif of God's abundance was clear in his mind. It was also clear in another church where God led them into something new. They were in a downward spiral as well, but it came to an end. It came to an end when God led them in a new direction they never anticipated. And that they recognized God's abundance that was there even when they didn't think it was there. It became obvious to everyone that the shift had occurred, that the transformation of a miracle had come about when the most crusty financial person in the congregation changed his mind. He moved from the attitude that every penny in the budget had to be accounted for in the income projections. And it shifted to, I think we can trust God to provide an additional $10,000 between now and the end of the year. Miracle of miracle, wonder of wonders, God's transformation in the leadership of the church. He went from an attitude of scarcity and fear to an attitude of abundance and boldness. And he was a key voice. And his change in attitude was both a statement of faith in God and in the people of the church. And neither God nor the people let him down. Such leadership is how God worked in the days of old. The Old Testament and the New Testament Remember Isaiah 43? This is the beginning of a whole new section of positive affirmation. It's sometimes called second Isaiah. Because the first Isaiah was talking about the the darkest of times. The people were in despair in their exile in Babylon. This was the people of Israel who had been taken to Babylon in the 7th century B.C., And it was there, though, that they heard the voice of this other Isaiah who wasn't describing their scarcity, but their abundance. Announcing a renewal in their relationship with God, Isaiah declared that God was doing a new thing in their midst, even while they were still in exile, far, far from home. Even if they couldn't yet see it, God was working on it. Trust God is what Isaiah is saying. 
Like the pastor at St. Stephen's Church in Page, like the leader who thought God would provide the needed $10,000, Isaiah articulated a vision of the future that was not yet seen, but was a word of hope and trust in God. You see, faith had taken hold. Energy, imagination, and hope came to the people And God's word did not return to them empty. In each case, God was faithful and the vision took root and grew and came to fruition. A vision. Any vision is a drawing of a verbal picture of what the future can be like. A vision statement in a church or organization portrays what the results will look like if the focus if they focus on their stated purpose and their mission is accomplished this is what it will look like the verbal picture helps people have a perceptual idea of the target what will the future look like if we work towards accomplishing what God is calling us to be about. And this is the articulated vision of God's call. And it's the job of the leaders of a church to keep that vision in front of the congregation. Good leaders continually draw this verbal picture of the place where you want to go, where you've decided God is calling you to go. This is what it will look like when we get there. Well, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, the letter to the Roman Christians, held up a vision. He told of the prominent, promised abundance of God and the transformation that God was, God was going to bring them individually. In Isaiah, it's the people of God. And in Romans, Paul begins with the individual's transformation. The vision of the New Testament, as we all know, is to bring all people to a saving knowledge of the love of God through Jesus Christ. And it's in Romans 12 where Paul envisioned a time when the new church development in Rome would indeed be successful. And in its success, it would unfortunately become too comfortable in its culture. And instead of being at the edges, at the margins of society, the church in Rome would become part of the culture to its own detriment. And this became the Christian church's reality in the 4th and 5th and 6th century A.D. Constantine, the emperor, adopted Christianity. And this was the beginning of what we today call Christendom which is the reign of civil religion and a comfortable relationship between secular governance and religious piety. And it was to the church's detriment ultimately, and especially now in the 21st century, where this happens. After 1,500 years, Paul's words in Romans 12, that warning that he gave to them that came true, challenge us now to break the bonds of Christendom. The jarring passage of 
of chapter 12 speaks most profoundly to us today and makes us very uncomfortable because we like that coziness of Christendom. But the truth today is the assumptions of Christendom no longer apply. The cozy world of culture and Christians together is bankrupt. And God is calling for a new way for the church to be in the world. Yes, we've been slow to perceive it, and we might not even yet believe it. This God is making a turn now into something new and different in our culture and here at First Baptist Church. Mainline churches today live such that they live in exile from the reality of people's lives in today's world. By continuing our rigid and traditional ways and ignoring God's newness, we're living more and more as an irrelevant institution rather than the living, breathing body of Christ. A person told me last night, a young person, frustrated with the church, said about her own faith, God is not lame. The church is. Ouch, that hurt. But this now is not a critique about the end of Christianity. We're talking about that 1,500-year period known as Christendom. And it's an acknowledgement that the cultural sea in which we have lived for the last 15 centuries has changed. Scholars of the sociology of religion note with great clarity that the zenith of Christendom, this unique melding of culture and Christianity, that it dominated the middle section of the 20th century, and then it began to dissipate rather dramatically as we began to approach the 21st century. And now that we're living in the 21st century, it is gone, whether we know it or not. The change signals that Christianity is no longer the assumed dominant religion. Post-Christendom, as we call it, means that the Christian faith is not the inherited faith that forms our identity automatically. People in America are not Christians because of their place of birth anymore. This has been assumed since the founding of our country, but it's no longer true. People have to choose and nurture Christian faith as a meaningful expression of their spirituality. It is a choice, a transformation. Paul speaks of the fundamental change in you, the individual, that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a transforming of you into something new, something different than what you were before. And then, then, out of individual transformation, Paul quickly describes the collection of changed individuals, transformed people, who become the body of Christ and who now make up the church. We are new creations. We are God's new children. 
Romans 12 is speaking of the essential change that needs to occur individually to live Christian lives. But this time, Paul is not talking about putting on something. In this case, he's not talking about uncovering something that's already there. But he's talking about the complete and utter transformation of who you are. From being self-centered human being to being a Christ-centered child of God. In Paul's words, remind us through that initial warning that the newly formed congregation in Rome was still having to fight for its identity. Back then it was easy for individuals and congregations to fail to do the work to build the body. And so he implants in this epistle a vision of the renewing work that every generation Each succeeding generation must apprehend and then complete. That's the job that we have to be about here at First Baptist Church today. Our little textbook, Leadership for the Vital Congregation, Chapter 2, describes these five approaches. You know, Burns and Hafetz and Palmer and Friedman and Wheatley. Each of these talk from a different discipline. But if you take all of them together, they suggest that leadership comes from a secure self meeting the new reality that requires something of us. A secure self meeting the new reality that requires Something of us. Leadership, you see, leaders help us to go there. Leaders of vital congregations study the reality in which we exist. And then they lead from the place of faith, secure in God's abundance. Are we ready to discern the new thing that God is doing here at First Baptist Church? And follow our leaders to join God in that place? This is the haunting question for our summer reflection. This is our challenge. We don't currently have a vision of God's call that draws us into the future. We have several historical directions from which we come, but we don't have that picture, verbal picture, because we've not yet discerned God's call. For us, without a vision, the people perish isn't just a scriptural sentence that we throw out to sound biblical, but it is a truth that's affirmed in every study of organizational life in every discipline across the board. All organizations, be they business, governmental, religious, social, civic, fraternal, need a common vision to be alive. And to move forward towards that vision. Otherwise, they cease to have meaning and purpose and ultimately cease to exist. And so today, we need an Isaiah to help us experience God's creative call. We need the words of Paul to remind us that all creative change begins with each person being transformed. And that's the challenge for us. 
We at First Baptist Church need to pray for transformation individually and discernment as the body of Christ and to hear God's clear call to a direction and an identity that will revitalize us and renew us to be God's people. I want you to take one minute. I love it that on our bulletins we have this little margin right now. And I want you to take the pen or pencil that's in front of you or in your purse. And just as Dennis begins our song, I want you to think about what steps will you take to connect to God's call? And what vision or call or identity is God calling First Baptist Church to claim? What steps will you take to connect to God's call? And what vision and call and identity is God calling First Baptist to claim? I want you to write it down. It's not homework. It's just a way of focusing your thinking as we sing our prayer hymn.